financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, on as always with my partner, Dominic Tavella. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. We're back after a couple of weeks. Happy New Year, Dominic. I hope all is well. Uh, all's well with me, Mike, and Happy New Year to you as well. Uh, hopefully this year's a heck of a lot better than last year. I think it will be. Um, we, we could finally put a bow on 2022. And, and in getting ready for the show tonight, Dom, and looking at all the the market recaps and the synopsis and 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 you know the um the bloody numbers that we went through one thing that i had forgotten is just like this year the market first day of trading was january 3rd 2022 and i had forgotten that the s&p actually reached an all-time high that day uh, it, it looked uh, like it was going to uh, be a pretty good year after what was a spectacular year in right. 2021. Uh, but you and I, I think on our very first podcast and then throughout the year, we're pretty adamant that uh, it doesn't feel like it's going to be that kind of year. And um, fortunately for us and fortunately for the clients, we started playing defense very, very early. And um, it, it did not turn out to be a very good year at all. And that's probably being polite, but maybe a little less painful for us. So uh, but grateful to, to start all over again, Mike. Grateful to start at zero and see where the, the new year brings us. Look, there's no way around it. It it was not a great year. Just do a quick recap of the numbers. The S&P was down 18%. The NASDAQ was down 32.5%. And the Dow Jones was down only about 7%, 686 and that's quite frankly because of the few energy stocks that make up the Dow Jones and the energy sector was up 66% last year. And, and the next sector that was up was, let me just check real quick, just lost my spot, utilities. So energy was up 66. The next leading sector was utilities. And um, that was up 16 you know, and then consumer staples was third, down a half a point. So, yeah, last year was, for a lot of different reasons, risk came off the table. I think one of the reasons was we started the, you know, the year last year with the Federal Reserve predicting four interest rate hikes at the most of 25 basis points each. Um, and we were free, we were pretty convinced that, that they would be done raising interest rates by by the midterm elections, and quite frankly, Dom, none of that, none of that, um, turned out to be true. And I think we could tie a lot of that in uh, to our guest tonight, who is Natasha Lance Rogoff, and this is a, a woman who, in the early '90s, went to Russia to basically bring Sesame Street um, to Russian children. And I think her appearance tonight is timely because you and I have sat with a lot of portfolio managers this year. And who did what did they blame the the first trigger on in in causing all the forecasts to go out the window? It was the war between the Russians and the Ukrainians. 
Um, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, uh, Mike, as uh, probably not surprising you. Um, I still blame uh, the Fed and its forecasting, which, as we well know, we got a perfectly working crystal ball that looks backwards, right? So we know in 2021, they were talking about inflation being transitory and no need to rush raising interest rates at all. And as you alluded to, even in January of last year, they were talking about very mild, benign type uh, rate increases. And that that changed dramatically. That mood changed dramatically. And I know we talked about the S&P performance and the NASDAQ, uh, but, you know, people um, uh, uh, and a decade of overperformance, you know, the, many people out there, uh, you know, had the fangs in their portfolio, Mike, the the Facebooks and the Netflix and the, the Amazons and Googles and Apple. Um, and if you own those fangs type stocks, many of them down 50, 60, 70% last year. So, you know, the 18, 19% for the, for the S&P seems kind of pretty good when you look at what a Netflix did or an Amazon did or some of these other companies. So many people got hurt last year and substantially worse than the, the S&P 500 performance. I agree with you. But the war started in February, I believe. And, 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 and right after that, Dominic, we started hearing about 5 and 6 and $7 gallon of gasoline. And a lot of it was attributed to the you know supply chain disruption, you know that that Russia would create uh, for for Western Europe and Eastern Europe. So I don't disagree with you that risk clearly came off the table with the Fang stocks and technology in general because of rising interest rates. Right, that's one set of circumstances, and the second set of cir- circumstances was the headlines of the high price of gas and inflation going through the roof, which also made a lot of investors, and more importantly, a lot of consumers, very, very nervous. Uh, uh, very nervous, and but and look, uh, you know, we can we can sugarcoat it any way we want, but I think uh, sometime in June, inflation hit a peak of over nine percent. Energy was clearly a big component of that. Problems with the supply chain in China and COVID were a, a really big part of that. People having excess savings and reserves because they weren't spending during the lockdown. Now they could afford to spend, and that means they could bid up and pay just about any price that 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 uh, companies were willing to sell product for or services for, right? Home improvements. Think about that. Uh, uh, what people were being charged, and people were like, yeah, I'll, I'll pay it. I don't have a choice. So. We were dealing with a, a scenario where inflation clearly uh, spiraled out of control way more than the Fed had assumed, and the Fed reacted accordingly. Um, and accordingly means they became very aggressive in their interest rate tightening policy, and that made many of these stocks that we're so big fans of, but their worth, their value, come down substantially, and that, and that hurt not only hurt the markets and the major indices, but a lot of investors that held these types of securities, and whether it's the individual names, the ETFs in the growth space or the mutual funds in the growth space, they, they got hammered. They got hammered pretty pretty hard. And the people who still are heavily involved in the tech sector will tell you it's not going to get better until we have more focus on when interest rates are going to stop going up. 
right? I, so, and I would agree with that, Mike. And I think too. a lot of this is common sense. So I think that's a, a point well made on, on your part. Um, you know, if the reasons why we are where we are have not changed just because the clock changed, right? Uh, it's great that it's uh, January 1st and it's a brand new year and we can look at the picture and start all over again. But the reality is that many of the issues that got us here in the first place are still here. And until the Fed changes its tone, at the very least its tone, um, markets are going to be volatile. Um, the good news again is we're prepared. Uh, we anticipated it and we're prepared. I think the general consensus is that the Fed is going to raise interest rates two or three more times. You know, what I've been reading is 50 basis points two times and then one more for 25, kind of get the Fed funds rates about 5%, then hopefully stop. But to your point, people don't react or the market doesn't react any longer to what the Fed announcement is. They react to the press conference an hour later and parse every word that Jerome Powell says. Uh, exactly right, Mike. Uh, it, it's kind of almost ironic that the last bunch of rate increases have been spot on what the market was expecting, anticipating, spot on. Uh, and the markets rally into that uh, interest rate hike, thinking, okay, we, we have a good scenario now. We understand it. We got a handle on it. And then Chairman Powell starts to talk, and you can just literally watch the market roll over and, and go down. So at this point in the game, not so much what they say they're going to do, but what they say after they do it. Um, and we'll pay attention and we'll act accordingly. And to Jerome Powell's credit, Dom, he has been – look, he was he – was, he was he was way off pace in the beginning of the year, but he's been pretty consistent, you know, since May or June in terms of the messaging that the Fed is going to do and what their goal is to get you know inflation down, the CPI down. But it, it's almost as if the market is petulant child and and wants us to hear what they want to hear. Uh, no doubt, Mike. No doubt. If you ask the typical analyst or portfolio manager, what would you like to hear? Mm -hmm. um, sure. Yeah, we stopped raising interest rates and inflation is going to go to zero. But that is not reality. The question here going forward is how do we get there? Um, and that's a long conversation for after the break. So, so the next couple of weeks, we are going to have portfolio managers and economists on, and we'll be able to get to that. In the experts. A little more yeah, a little deeper dive, but but you know we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with Natasha Lance Rogoff, the author of the Muppets in Moscow. And as I said, this is a woman in the early to mid nineties tried to bring and successfully did bring, I should say, Russia's version of Sesame Street to Russian children and the harrowing experience that she went through to uh, accomplish that. So we'll be right back with Natasha Lance Rogoff. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X, Le Tax. Rates on cash are already so low, why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. 
The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella and our guest tonight, Natasha Lance Rogoff, the author of Muppets in Moscow. How are you, Natasha? Very good. Happy New Year to all. Thank you for joining us, Natasha. I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. Me too. Thank you. So, Natasha, I guess we're just going to start right from the beginning. Whose idea was it to, to bring a Russian version of Sesame Street to Russian children did, did, did the Sesame Workshop approach the Russian government or did the Russian government approach you guys with the notion that this might be a good idea? Well, it's, um, it's a little bit of both. And the um, Sesame Workshop, which was then called Children's Television Workshop, is a nonprofit. And um, they had approached the Congress, the U.S. Congress, so you kind of have to think about what was going on at this time, you know, just after Soviet communism collapsed. And, um, you know, the the whole Western world was euphoric, you know, that 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 uh, there was the prospect of Russia joining the free world. And then Senator Biden at that time uh, was working to get the Congress to provide bipartisan support for a Russian Sesame Street production. And the idea was that the Muppets would be the best ambassadors of idealistic values like tolerance and freedom of expression, which they are. <laughs> but uh, um, the, um, you know, uh, they, so eventually the Senator Biden um, got support for the production. Um, and they also had, as part of the discussions at the Senate um, Foreign Relations Subcommittee hearing, a representative from the Russian government. 
Elena Lenskaya, and she explained that, you know, she told the whole the whole um, subcommittee, uh, you know, we really need something like Sesame Street, and we'd we'd much prefer having Sesame Street to imported programs like Rambo. And that, you know, that was that was actually recorded. It was quite amazing. So we were working with the uh, Russian Ministry of Education. And that started a very difficult uh, next five years of my life. Um, and I did not expect to be tapped to lead this production at all. <laughs> so, Natasha, I can't think of anything more benign and sort of global ambassador than the Muppets. But you basically had to get the U.S. government involved with the Russian government to approve this project going forward in Russia. Is, am I getting this correct? Well, you know, at the time, this was this was uh, uh, right when um, you know the Soviet Union fell, and there really wasn't much uh, state funding available for film or television at that time. I mean, this was a period of enormous instability in Russia. We didn't know at that time if Russia was going to stay this, you know, or even emerge as a fledgling democracy, or would it revert to communism, or what else would come in the future? Nobody really knew what was going to happen. And, you know, it was into this vacuum that the idea of bringing Sesame Street to Russia and creating a new show that would reflect Russian culture and Russian values, new open society values, you know, of this new country. Uh, because, of course, a lot of the countries had split off and become independent, like Armenia, Ukraine, Georgia. So we're really talking about Russia. But at the same time, the state television entity was still uh, covering was still transmitting across 11 time zones. So one seventh of the world's surface. And the idea was that the Muppets could provide skills and knowledge to children to help them thrive in this new open society. So that was, of course, we were making the show with, uh, you know, eventually our team numbered 400 of, you know, writers. Uh, producers, filmmakers, animators, set designers. So it was a huge collaborative venture. And, and most of them being Russian, correct? Oh, yeah. We had only a few Americans involved in the production that were on site, you know, in Russia, uh, you know, most regularly. And then the um, the Americans from the Sesame Street studios in New York would come over and provide workshops. So we had like the guy who who is um, Telly Monster and Snuffleupagus. He trained the puppeteers in in um, the Russian puppeteers, and we had the veteran writers from Sesame Street. So Luis Santiero came over and trained the Russian writers. So it was a real move, you know. Oh, and the Russians also came to New York and visited the Sesame Street studio, and they learned. Uh, you know, all about the production on that from coming to the United States, too. So, Natasha, with were there was there any children programming at the time or were you trailblazing, you know, this this whole new genre of television for for Russia? 
That, that's a really great question because at this time in America, we were it was the beginning of cable. So we had Nickelodeon. I mean, click cable was just blossoming. But in in what was the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, that wasn't the case. And television was primarily utilized for propaganda in Soviet times. So the largest production that had been made in television, dramatic production, had 12 episodes. So you think about that, you know, when we're making, you know, 150, you know, you know, episodes of Sesame Street at the same time. So there, there, when we first proposed the idea to do that, there was one children's show um, on television at the time because it was a real a period of extreme uh, um, poverty for uh, for production at, at that time. So uh, they, the Russian partners said that's impossible. We couldn't possibly do this show with uh, you know 150 episodes. Um, we we ended up doing 52 half hours for for the first season. And it was very difficult. Um, we also had to import a lot of the equipment and materials that did not exist in the former Soviet Union. And in addition to that, the, um, the process, the approach that the Russian team used to shoot television was entirely different. So an example of that is uh, shooting with sync sound. It was not done then at all. Um, and the dubbing, you know, we, we had a certain portion of the show that was dubbed Muppet segments. And the Russians have a, had at that time, they were dubbing shows with one person. So you have like this monotone narrator who just talks about, he, he talks about what the people are saying on the screen. So it's not actors, you know, with acting with emotion it was just it was called a narration and we of course didn't want to do that we wanted to have find you know who's russian cookie monster and who's going to be you know russian ernie and but 60 percent of the show was entirely originally shot including the creation of three new slavic muppets based on their own culture and a giant neighborhood set that looks very Russian. It's entirely Russian in its design. And that that caused a lot of, uh, uh, in the book, I write about it extensively, you know, how, what was this neighborhood going to look like? Because it wasn't the Soviet Union anymore. It wasn't pre-revolutionary Russia. So what was this neighborhood going to look like? So uh, Natasha, I can't help asking because that's some of the technical problems, but I imagine, uh, you know, Russia coming out of its Cold War environment, that the politics were a big part of it. What you were allowed to say, what you could say, what maybe subtly you try to get away with. I'd love to hear about uh, your adventure there. Well, there were there were enormous cultural differences, as you can imagine, precisely because of what you're you're saying. I mean, we were working with. Um, you know, hundreds of people who had come out of 70 years of communism, not one generation, but three generations. And, um, you know, there were a lot of uh, difficulties, you know, one in the 
in the curriculum seminar, which is the cornerstone of every international Sesame Workshop co-production, um, we bring together the creative team and education experts to discuss what is going to be the content for the show. And when we did this in Moscow, we were holding it in the um, monastery, the Russian Orthodox Monastery, which was the headquarters of the Russian Orthodox Church. It was where we could rent space. But to me, it was kind of <laughs> you know, amazing to be inside this beautiful setting with all these, you know, cupolas and, you know, um, churches. It just felt very spiritual and intense. And, uh, you know, the discussion that we had, um, you know, at first the, the Russian team said that we showed them some clips from Sesame Street from the American show to familiarize them with the program. And almost immediately they said, well, of course, our show is going to be a much more sophisticated than, than the American one because our children are much smarter. And then there was a whole discussion about the differences in uh, you know, Soviet, post-Soviet education versus American. And then when we um, brought up the idea of, you know, how do you teach children about a free market? Because there wasn't one. It didn't exist in Russia before that. Um, or in the, the former uh, Soviet Union at all. So, you know, I raised my hand at one point and innocently suggested, well, we could do a scenario about a lemonade stand, children running a lemonade stand. And, you know, as soon as I said it, the whole group just, you know, there was silence. And then, you know, someone said uh, uh, in the group, you know, that's that's horrible. You know, children selling things on the street uh, you know, the only people who do that are are criminals and the mafia. And, you know, it's only a few years after the Soviet Union had had fallen. So, of course, they thought that because, you know, independent commerce was illegal. And um, the only people who were engaging in that sort of activity were was mafia. So there were many examples of that, you know, including the making of the Muppets themselves, where we showed them images of, you know, various Muppets from different international co-productions. And I had uh, produced the show Plaza Sesamo, which was the Mexican, uh, Mexican Sesame Street show. So we showed them the Muppets from the uh, Spanish language show, from the Israeli show, um, and, um, you know, several other other Germany. Uh, and they just looked at the Muppets and they said, oh, they don't look Russian. They don't look Russian. We're not going to have your Muppets in our Sesame Street. And then the head writer said, uh, you know, Natasha, we have our own revered puppet tradition dating back to the 16th century. So we don't really need your Muppets. So, you know, you were dealing in trying to create this new uh, progressive, innovative Muppet show. We were also dealing with a society that was going through a very difficult period, you know, extreme trauma, humiliation. The whole world had just watched their country collapse. So as the person leading production, I had to be very sensitive to these undertones throughout everything. Otherwise, we would just fail. We would come to, uh, you know, um, uh, just a, a point where there could be no uh, compromise. 
Natasha, we are bumping up against a break. So before I get into a new topic, let's take a quick break now, and then we'll come back, and we both have a million more questions for you. Sure. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When you're thinking about where to park your cash, for over 30 years in the business, I've been a fan of funds like the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's managed for cash and designed so the interest income you receive is free from federal taxes. And who doesn't love paying less taxes? Mike, generating interest that's free from federal taxes is appealing, but I've been in this business for a long time, and people love the potential for more income on their hard-earned cash. Sorry, Dom, but the beauty of the fund is paying less taxes on cash. No, my friend, it's the potential for more income. Mm-mm, less taxes. More income. Less taxes. More income. Less For taxes. your cash, ask your advisor mm-hmm. about the Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free I'm Income Fund you, less taxes. or find out more at dcmadvisors.com. Well, Dom, one thing I know we agree on, it's not what you earn, it's what you keep. Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, symbol L-E-T-A-X. Tax. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. You are listening to The Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to The Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with my partner, Dominic Tavella, and our guest this evening, Natasha Lance Rogoff. Natasha, let me ask you this. You know, Sesame Street, from from its original iteration, always wanted to teach children to be inclusive and patient and about different races and, 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 you know, basically, can't we all get along, right, and be tolerant of each other? And obviously now, you know, they think they've taken it to another level. But even in the 90s, that was a big theme. So when you went to when you went to create the show in Russia, were you trying to accomplish that or were you successful in that? Or did you know going in that there were certain barriers you just were not going to be able to break through? Well, they, you know, in in the Soviet Union, they had over 123 different nationalities, and this included Central Asians. Mm-hmm. 
um, Tartars, uh, Chechens. You know, I mean, it was a it was a huge uh, swath of land, and of course, when we were developing Sesame Street in Russia for the first time, there was a discussion about inclusivity. And not not everything, I mean, the show is is, uh, designed to reflect each of the cultures that we are cooperating with to create an original program. And in Russia, they they did not have the same uh, uh, historical experience with race as we did in the US. And they had different races than we did in the U.S. So, um, but the goal was to create a show that would promote tolerance and inclusivity. Um, And I can tell you about one time when we were, um, we showed a clip to the um, creative team and the, the education experts in Moscow, which was a, um, uh, a clip of a little boy in a wheelchair who was flying a kite and there was this upbeat song in the background, you know, me and my chair, we go everywhere. And we showed this as an example of inclusivity. And when the clip finished, uh, one of the uh, educators uh, stood up and said, how can you show children in wheelchairs? It's so exploitative. And this was not the, you know, the reaction I expected from this clip. So um, then another woman uh, educator uh, raised her hand and said, kind of innocently, I don't understand why would normal children ever want to watch a TV show with not normal children. So when this happened, I was just completely disheartened. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe Russia's not ready for Sesame Street, you know. But then this other woman raised her hand and she said, you know, you Americans don't understand that our country is has fallen apart. Our healthcare system has collapsed. And there are children, uh, disabled children, who are trapped in their beds. And they will never have a wheelchair. We can't afford them for all the children with disabilities. So how will these children feel if they see other children on the TV show with wheelchairs? They'll just feel sad. And as she said this, you know, it was like a dagger. You're just like, oh my God, you know, I don't, it didn't even occur to me, you know, uh, at the time. And you know, it, it also made me realize that, you know, the, the educators we were working with were really taking their job, uh, you know, seriously. They felt responsible and they were trying to grapple with the reality of their own experience uh, across, you know, as I said, 11 time zones. But what ended up happening with this afterwards is a very different, you know, uh, than what I had thought. And I write about this in in Muppets in Moscow. And, um, you know, in the end, um, the there was a consensus about how to deal with children with disabilities. And I think that um, this transformation uh, took place in various aspects of the show, in the music, in the content, but it wasn't immediate. It was a process. 
And it certainly wasn't, you know, with me saying anything. The group came to this conclusion by communicating with each other and coming up with a compromise themselves. Um, so that's that's like one example. There are others too where I was more adamant about a particular um, you know, approach for Sesame Street. Uh, but that was usually, it usually had more to do with wanting the show to be a hit and wanting it to be funny, you know, to, to have great comedy and great music. You know, Natasha, we, uh, myself, Michael, we get invited and we meet with economists and portfolio managers pretty much weekly to hear the latest ideas and insights. And one that we heard quite a number of years ago, Mike, you might be more uh, in tune for when, but a term called BRICS, mm -hmm. uh, B standing for Brazil, R for Russia, I for India, C for China, K for Korea. And these were the five countries that were not only uh, investable, but had the greatest opportunity for a business coming in there um, based on where their economies were, their population, the opportunity for business growth. And Think of a, of a Starbucks being able to open up a place or, or a, a Kentucky Fried Chicken in China. But you're really talking about the challenges of an American business. And, and we, we don't like to think of maybe the Muppets as a business, but even if it's a non-for-profit, it's a business, right? You want to be successful. The challenges that a business that is uh, created and, and conceived in the United States, how do you implant that in another country, another culture? And you're talking about some pretty serious challenges that you had to yeah. go through. That's, that's very true. I mean, this, you know, it wasn't only the Muppets that were coming into uh, the former Soviet Union at this time. It was a flood of investors and business people. You had Pizza Hut, McDonald's, you also had a lot of imported TV shows at the time, but we were very different. We were trying, you know, we were working with people locally to create something that was a totally new and original show that would be a positive force in the society. And, um, you know, we couldn't have done this without the support of both the U.S. government and Russian private investors because that's who funded uh, Ulitsa Sazam, which means Sesame Street in Russia. Um, and eventually we had to also get the uh, buy-in from the uh, Russia's largest TV station, TV uh, channel, Astankina, which we did not get until the very end when the show was, was already produced. So it was a really long process, but you know, in terms of what you're talking about and overcoming a lot of the cross-cultural differences, when I finished uh, um, uh, Ulitsa Sazam and I left um, Sesame Street at the end of it, Sesame Workshop, I was approached by Coca-Cola to come in and help them, uh, you know, develop their business in Russia. And of course, that 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 wasn't my thing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. It never was going to be. So I said no. But, you know, it was uh, obviously a lot of the, the, the skills that we needed to have to, um, you know, create a program that would bring the best of uh, Russian uh, and, you know, of, the, of their other nationalities in the country, the best of their artistry, 
and their passion to create this magnificent show coupled with the American expertise. I mean, it was it was difficult, but you know, I'd say, you know, the fact that the show became such a huge hit and lasted for 10 years, you know, well into Putin's era um, is, you know, evidence of our uh, impact, um, as well as, you know, thinking about the Russians now that are marching out of Russia because they don't want to fight and they don't support the war. And, um, you know, they grew up on Ulitsa-Sazam. They're, they're in their late 20s and 30s. And it's the same age cohort in Ukraine that's, you know, that are fighting for their independence. And they are also children of Sesame Street, of Ulitsa-Sazam, because the show aired in Ukraine, too. So, Natasha, you know, let's talk about the correlation of the war in, in Russia going on right now. And it seems to be that any... Any oligarch or businessman that speaks out against the war seems to uh, fall out of windows frequently. And and you mentioned in your book, you know, assassination attempts and, and and you know, I mean, real heavy duty stuff. One person was, it wasn't an attempt at assassination. He was actually was assassinated. So did any, number one, why did that even happen? You know, what were they trying, what were they trying to scare you? You know, what was the motive behind that? And did you ever reach the point where you said this is just nuts and, you know, not worth it? Yeah, <laughs> many times, <laughs> like every week, <laughs> practically. But it was, uh, you know, the first, our first investor uh, was a uh, budding Russian oligarch and, um I was with my business partner, Russian partner, um, who had, we negotiated a deal with him to become a sponsor for Ulitsa Sazam for Sesame Street. And, um, uh, you know, we were ecstatic. It had taken months to like even have a meeting with this guy. And, you know, there was at one point we were sitting with him and, you know, even he, he was asked, he kept asking, you know, I was explaining that the Muppets are new uh, going to be original Muppets designed with uh, Russian um, designers and the Henson team. And he kept saying, so, you know, he says in Russian, so no big bird, no big bird. But <laughs> hearing this oligarch say big bird, <laughs> and I was just like, this is so fun, you know. And then uh, three weeks later, he's his, the same car that we had been in talking about the deal that car was blown up and he barely survived. He had severe burns and he lived, uh, which is, you know, he, he was later killed um, in a, um, in London, many years later, ostensibly in suspicious circumstances in London during the Putin era. But then a few months later, our broadcast partner, um, who had agreed to air the show on Russia's largest television station. He was a great man, Vlad Listyev, who was uh, trying to bring press freedom to, to Russian television. And he was also fighting corruption inside the TV station. It had to do with advertising revenue, uh, which was being uh, infiltrated by the mafia to some extent. And he was our confidant 
and really so important in terms of giving us advice along the way and how to navigate this, you know, I don't know, medieval, uh, you know, television industry. And he was shot after he left the studio uh, one evening and he was he was murdered. Oh, God. Um, but that 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 happened to another person, the same another person we negotiated the deal with nine months later. So this was a product of that time period. And as we see today, um, you know, it never stopped. So Natasha, you know, on a, on a, on a happier note, let's talk about those characters over your right shoulder, which I think are Russian Muppets, if I'm correct. Yes, the big blue full body puppet is Zeli Boba. And then uh, Kubik, the orange uh, uh, hand puppet. And then the rod puppet is Businka, the pink little full of energy puppet. And um, it was fascinating creating the, the blue full body puppet because uh, he's based on a Russian folklore character called Domovoy, which is a spirit who protects the hearth and the home. And this evolved into, he's also a spirit of nature. So this character has leaves and twigs and moss sewn into his, um, his coat. And he lives inside a 40-foot tree. Uh, so that was, you know, a very Russian character. And his personality is, um, you know, playful and helpful uh, in line with the Russian team's um, prioritization on trying to create a neighborhood where people treated each other with kindness. Um, but there were many, many debates, which I talk about in the book, including his color. Um, so um, some of the uh, Russian colleagues objected to him being blue because the word blue, gold boy, means gay in Russian. And one of the one of the writers said people will think the puppet's gay. <laughs> so we we had all these discussions that you just can't even imagine. And my favorite one was when the colors for these uh, Muppets were determined. The uh, Russian creative team had to consult the um, the philosophical treaties written by the great uh, painter uh, Vasily Kandinsky, and he wrote a book called The Theory of Color. And in this book, he writes about how different colors are equated with different emotions. So that was how we had to pick the colors for these Muppets. And I would say that you know, for instance, Big Bird is yellow, but according to Kandinsky, yellow causes madness in children. Fans <laughs> um, of Big Bird might disagree. Yeah, Big Bird will disagree. But if you look at the Russian show, the Ulitsa Sazam, it's my it's the most beautiful production that, you know, nobody can argue with the fact that you know, Russian artists are have contributed so much to the world. And this is especially why, you know, it's so tragic now to see what's happening in Ukraine perpetrated by Putin's government 
And it has been so difficult for my former colleagues as well, um, you know, who were vocal against the war. And many of them had to leave uh, within 24 hours, leave Russia, um, because they were in danger of being imprisoned for 15 years. Natasha, does any of this great work survive? Is it is it functioning anywhere? Is it operating anywhere? You mean the show? Yeah. And the, the characters? Show, well, the, show, the show lasted for, for 10 years. Um, and as I meet people around the world who are uh, from Russia, Georgia, Ukraine, Armenia, I always ask them, do you know Ulitsa Sazam? And it is incredible how popular the show was. And, um, you know, many of the people I talked to talk to me about who their favorite Muppet is, and they'll start reciting some of the songs. And that's the legacy that we left, you know, that was started by Jim Henson and continued, you know, to to be uh, expressed in Russia. But um, I don't, you know, you couldn't have this show in Russia now. And it's it's very sad to see. Natasha, if anyone wants to learn more about your adventures and, and your story, the name of the book is Muppets in Moscow. And what and what's the best way for someone to pick up the book if they if they wanted to? It's on Amazon, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected true story of making Sesame Street in Russia. And um if you want to reach me, you can go to my website, which is just my name, and it's natashalancerogoff.com. Natasha, this was a great conversation. It was a great way to start the new year. And uh, we thank you for your time this evening. Thank you, Natasha. Thank what an you eye so open. much. And I, I would only add, we hope for peace in Ukraine. So, Absolutely. Take care. Have a take great care, Natasha. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network small businesses are in trouble and it didn't just start with covid19 from the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Labenthal Report. If you're listening to the show live, join in on our discussion with questions or comments at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. 
472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at labenthal.com. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dom Tavella. Dom, Natasha did a great job. It was so, so, so fascinating. Uh, you were talking on the break, you know, God forbid, if, 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 you know, I'm with a backer of something I'm trying to do and they get blown up in, in the car that I sat in three weeks ago, I might be on the first plane out of there. So I give a commitment and encourage Mike to just be in that environment. And I, I know I kind of mentioned it a little bit when we had her on, but you know, how many meetings were we in with the portfolio managers and strategists that you had to buy the bricks, you had to buy the bricks, you had to buy the bricks. The these countries that offered you know, just tremendous opportunity for business growth. I don't think many of these people understood back then the challenges, even think about Coca-Cola, for God's sakes, with their resources, uh, the challenges these businesses had and still have, think about today, of operating in these foreign countries. Yeah, look, and and, and right now the countries are a shambles, the currencies are shambles, and no one talks about the BRICS anymore. They talk about the BICs. They've eliminated the R. So no economist, I think, is excited about, forget the war in Russia for a minute, even before the war with Ukraine, Russia's economy was deteriorating rapidly. Uh, um, and I, I agree, Russia uh, is uninvestable at this point, but you still hear about China, you certainly hear about India now oh, yeah. as the next great opportunity, and the opportunities are there, we hear about them all the time, but I think sometimes common sense overrules uh, greed, uh, greed overrules common sense, and uh, there are challenges. There are challenges to businesses operating there, political, economic, cultural, and she mentioned the mafia more than, than a few times, uh, crime, right? So not as easy. It's easier said than done. Look, you know, I, I give I give the folks at Sesame Street all the credit in the world for for trying and actually pulling pulling it off. Um, and 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 you know, I hope the citizens benefited from that. But um, what what an adventure that that she went through. Uh, for those 10 years. And she's probably right. She could never get that show on on, on Russian air today. I think it would be un, highly unlikely. And and Mike, she hinted at it again. Think about the, the, the decade that this show was on and other shows like it where the younger people in the country now saw a different culture and a different attitude. And now they're being asked to get a rifle and go to war. Right. right. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a seed that was planted and Again, it, the shame is that innocent people on both sides are, are dying, and it's completely unnecessary. So, Dom, we're off to a good start for, for 2023 in terms of our guests, in terms of our podcast, and uh, we will be back uh, next week with a new show. And uh, once again, we're out of time, and uh, Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year. Uh, great start to the year, Mike, uh, with, with the podcast, and we've gotten a lot of compliments over the past 12 months, people seem to like it. I'm not quite sure why, but they do. Um, so as long as they like it, we'll keep doing them, right, Mike? Clearly, you're a sparkling personality, Dominic. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. But thanks, Mike. <laughs> Happy New Year. Have a Happy good night, Year everybody. All our clients. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman will be back for our next program airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, 
Have a great week.